Welcome everyone uh, to the last installment of the Fruit of the Spirit series. So it's been weeks and weeks and weeks to get to the end, which is awesome. So it's taken us a few months to get here, but it has been a fantastic series. So just before um, we dive into the last part, which I think is a super interesting and super challenging one, but before we before we get that, I'll, I'll just recap um, the fruit of the spirit again and what all of this was about so that we get back into um, the summary from last time. So Galatians 5 from verse 13 says this, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. That is your old nature that wants to sin. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Submit to Him. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against or what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want or so that you don't do what you actually want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law, right? He's saying to all of these believers, hey, guys, um, you now have a new nature that you didn't have before. At first, you just wanted to sin and you were very comfortable with sinning. It was not a problem for you, right? But now you have been changed. You have a new nature. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. And when the Holy Spirit is living within you, you have new life. And that new life comes with new desires. It comes with new affections and it comes with a new master. You're not under Satan. You're not under the flesh anymore. You're under Christ. So you have a new master, right? So the things that you loved and you wanted before, it's not the same now. You have new affections. You have new desires. You have new things that you love. But against these new things that you love, there is this tension because the old things that you wanted, they're still there and they're still saying, hey, we're still here. Come get us, right? But you have new affections and new desires now. So you end up fighting between those two things. And it's a bitter battle, right? And the only way to win it is to submit to the Holy Spirit, which is what being said here. So what are those two natures, right? What are my old desires versus my new desires as a believer? Well, they're right here. The acts of the flesh, the old nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, not the app, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh, the old nature, with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, right? It's basically that these people who are following Jesus are choosing to die to their old nature every day by saying yes to God every day, right? So that first list is still whispering in their ear going, hey, we're here, come get us. But they're saying no, and they're choosing the second list, right? 
Self-control is the battle between those two every day, essentially. That's what we're going to be talking about, right? And we're going to get, we're really going to get into it here. But we just before we do, let's just get a refresher of what all of this is about. The Holy Spirit, right, is a member of the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he's the one who dwells within and gives power to every believer to live that Christian life, okay? Without the Holy Spirit, you have nothing, you have no power, no strength to say no to any of the things in this first list here. You're, in fact, you don't want to say no to them. You want them more than anything else. You can't wait to do these things. Look at the world around you. You have no power and no desire to say no to these things. But the Holy Spirit within you is the new nature that gives you the power to actually say no where you couldn't say no before. It's impossible to live the Christian life without the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Without his leading, you have nowhere to go. You, have, you don't know where to go and you don't know how to get there. Without his power, his empowerment, you don't have the strength to get there. You can know what's right and you still don't do it. But when you have both of those things, you're able to make the decision, the choice to walk in God's way. The fruit of the spirit, right? These things that we talked about, love, joy, peace, peace, all these things, including self-control, is the result of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives over time. These fruits are not just the works of a good person. Remember, we were talking about the world has a version of all of these fruits, but God has a supernatural version of all of these fruits that humans can't pull off on their own. It is a special empowerment from God through the Holy Spirit, right? When the Holy Spirit is dwelling within a person, he will gradually transform them to look more and more and more like Jesus. That's the aim of the Holy Spirit, right, within our lives, to make us look like Jesus, the perfect man. We'll never get there in this life, but he will be working on us to transform us more and more and more into his image as we follow God, right? So that's, that's what's happening here. The fruit of the Spirit, like I said, is the supernatural. It's not normal. It's not just by like, Having sheer willpower, it's supernatural. It comes from God. It's a transformation that will begin to show in a person when they submit themselves in obedience to the work of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit points to something and says, hey, this is the way, walk in it. As you're reading your Bible, you're like, yep, I know this is true. This is right. He gives you the power, the desire to walk in it. And then you make those decisions by submitting to him and walking in it. And as you do that over and over, you begin to see love joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control, all begin to grow, right? And that is proof that you're alive spiritually because there's forward movement in these things. These fruits are evident in your life. And that's what Jesus said, how to tell a person who is actually a follower of him from a person who isn't. He said, you will know them by their fruits, right? This is what it is. You'll know them by their fruit. So if you see someone, you're like, I'm a Christian, there is zero evidence of change in their lives. There is zero evidence of any of the fruit of the Spirit growing in them over time. That person should be asking themselves some serious questions, right? So that's the refresher. We can't live the Christian life without the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we submit to him to be able to live that life, right? Okay, so you can't live, you can't have the Holy Spirit of God within you and your life has no change at all, which I just said. So self-control. What is it? Now, before I get into this, I'm just going to, well, you know, what? I can show you this first. It's the discipline, okay, 
to deny yourself what you want now for what you really want most, okay? Read that again. Self-control, right, by definition, right, is the discipline, having the discipline to deny yourself, to say no to yourself towards something that you want now for what you want ultimately, for what you want most. It's like, yeah, hey, I really want to get fit. I really want six-pack abs. I really want, um, you know, to, to be able to run 10Ks without stopping. Oh, but right now this chocolate cake looks so good, right? Me deciding to say no to the chocolate cake in order to actually be fit and to, to run that half marathon or whatever distance it's going to be, um, that's discipline. That's self-control, right? Now, Bible takes it a step further. It's not just earthly self-control. It's spiritual self-control that we didn't have before, that we can't have without the Holy Spirit. There are plenty of people who aren't Christians who have amazing discipline people all the way from the military to, you know, business people to artists and musicians and dancers and whatever it might be. They're having Olympians, incredible self-control, but it's not spiritual self-control. It does nothing for them spiritually. Spiritual self-control is the power to say no to sin that we couldn't resist before, which is what I was saying to you guys earlier. We were sinful. We only had one nature. We didn't have two. So we only had one set of desires. I just wanted to sin. I just wanted to go against God. And I didn't even know that that was against God. I just, that's all I wanted to do. Now, when I became a believer, I have two natures. I can see that there is a different desire. There's a different goal. There's a different aim. There's something that I want more than anything else, which is Jesus. But this sin is getting in the way of me being with him. And so my desires have shifted. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I get to say no to the sin that I couldn't say no to before, no matter how hard I tried. That is the self-control that the Holy Spirit gives, that you can't just try to do by being super strong internally and getting the right mindset and all the stuff that you hear in school and on TV and whatever. You just, you just got to believe, like, you can't do it by just gritting your teeth, because we've all tried to resist sin in that way, and it never works. It's never, ever worked for me that way. But the self-control that the Holy Spirit gives is the power to say no to sin that we couldn't resist before, that we can't resist without him, right? So let me give you a really practical example of what this looks like, okay? Check it out. Okay, here's here's the deal. Okay. Here's the deal. I'm gonna go potty really fast, okay? And when I come back, you can have them, okay? But don't touch them. You can't touch them until I get back, okay? Okay. You have to be so patient, okay? So very patient. It's really good, okay? I'm gonna go potty and I'll be right back. But remember, don't touch them until I get back, okay? Okay. I'll be right back. Okay.
Oh no, I don't know what I just did, but I actually wanted to pause the video there, right? What do you guys think she did? I can't see you, so it, it's, it's going to be, there you are. Okay, hands up if you put, Johnny, do you reckon she, she took it or do you reckon she waited? Hands up. Uh, I think she took it. You reckon she took it? All right, sweet. Well, we're going to find out at the end of this message whether she took it or not. But that girl is super cute. Um, now, continuing on, right? So I just found that little video to be, I'm just like, that's exactly what we're like, right? We go, hey, here's something um, I really want, but I know I shouldn't have it. And you can see her, like, you can see her looking at it and she's like, oh, I want this so bad. She's like, sniffing it she's touching the mat but not touching it she's just doing all this stuff around it right um she's not going for it yet but she's just like you can see how like how much she's trying to resist genuinely resist the temptation to do what her mom said not to do right now this is the thing right this is what happens okay we have needs and then we take actions to fulfill needs, but the actions that we take to fulfill those needs have consequences. Let me explain. When we sin, when we do the wrong thing, right? When we sin, it's when we act on a legitimate desire that we have, but we act on it outside of God's way. So we sin when we choose the fake version. Because there's God's version of something, and then there's Satan's version of something, the world's version of something, right? We sin when we act on genuine desires that we have, but we do it outside of God's way, right? So we have legitimate needs, okay? Let's say I have the need to, be, um, to feel genuinely loved, to feel accepted for who I am um, in Christ, right? Not just stay the way that I am, long story, but to feel accepted, to feel genuinely loved, um, and to feel like somebody actually wants me to feel desired, right? Now, I know that those things can be fulfilled in many different ways. One of those ways is through sex, right? God's way is saying, hey, I want you to partner up with somebody for life and to explore the amazing gift of sex together with each other for life, right? But I can go, you know what? I don't have to wait for that. I can get that same kind of high from porn or from having sex outside of marriage or whatever. But is it the same thing? No, right? It doesn't give me the things that I actually really deeply legitimately desire. I have two ways to fulfill a legitimate need. I feel hungry. I can either steal a loaf of bread or I can work for that loaf of bread and actually get it in a legitimate way, right? There's two ways to fulfill every need. There's my way and there's God's way. And whichever one I choose will have a consequence, right? And every morning I wake up and I'm presented with these two options. I have legitimate needs. As soon as I wake up, I want all of these different things deep down, right? They're deep things. I want to, to, to be loved. I want to be accepted. I want to be useful. I want to be fulfilled. I want to be you know, all of these things that we all desire as human beings that God put there, all of these desires that he put there himself, they're legitimate 
needs, their legitimate desires, right? But every morning, God presents us with an option of how to fulfill that desire his way. And Satan presents us with an option of how to fulfill that desire in a fake way that leads to our destruction. And we have the choice of picking which one we're going to go for. And it takes self-control from the Holy Spirit to pick God's way. That's what I'm trying to say to you, right? Self-control is the ability to choose to fulfill our legitimate needs legitimately through God's way, right? So let me let me unpack this just a tiny bit further before we get into the stories. This isn't going to be like a super long message, so just bear with me, right? Self-control is has been for me personally, one of the most challenging things in my life, okay? Let me explain to you why. Because it exposes where our real affections lie, where our real desires lie. Every time we're confronted with that test, the test of how we will fulfill our desires each day reveals where our true affections lie. A preacher put it to me this way a long time ago. He said to me, it's easy to act like a Christian. It's hard to react like a Christian, right? Because when you're acting like a Christian, it's a rehearsed performance. You know what's going to happen and you know how to act around that situation, right? So you walk in, you know how to sing the songs, you know how to pray the prayers when you're asked and you know how to do all that. And it's easy to act like a Christian, right? But as soon as you're tested, as soon as something comes up that you weren't expecting, that's when you begin to react, right? And if you were faking that whole time, when the test comes, you can't actually continue to act that way. You begin to falter, right? Because you're like, oh man, like I, I was, now my mask is off and I'm being really tested and I'm not prepared for the situation. I don't know how to act here. It's easy to act like a Christian. It's hard to react like a Christian when you're tested. One shows genuineness of faith all the way underneath, and one shows that there's a struggle there, right? So self-control is a real test. It really exposes what our true affections are. And by that, I mean this. I think so often, I'm going to try to word this the best way that I can. It's like, we kind of see God a bit like that mom who's like, Hey, like there's this really amazing thing, but you can't touch it. Like, I don't want you to touch it. You can't touch it. Um, now, now, I know it's amazing. You know it's amazing. And you really want it. And I know you really want it. But guess what? You can't touch it. Um, you know, you really want to go to that party. You really want to meet up with that girl or that guy. You really want to try that drink or you really want to do this or you really want to do that. I know it's good and you know it's good, but like, not nah, you can't do it. I, I'm just going to be a killjoy and just put it in front of you and tempt you with it and then you can't have it. Like, that's a complete misunderstanding of how a relationship with God works and what happens when you actually become a Christian. Here's the thing, right? This is what I mean by it's a, re it's a test of where our heart really lies, right? Before you become a Christian, you want certain things, right? Um, 
I really want to go to that party. I really want to get smashed. I really want to do this. I really want to hook up with that girl. I really want to do whatever. I really want those things and I think they're good and I'm going for them, right? And then we think that when we become Christians, we're like, yeah, I really want to go to that club. I really want to get smashed. I really want to hook up with this girl. I really want to do that. Oh, but like God is like holding me back and like he's such a weight. Like I just, I can't, I wish I could leave this so I could go back and do this. Right? I feel like God's holding me back. Whereas what really happens when you become a believer is your affections change. The things you wanted before are not the things that you want most anymore. What you want most is now Jesus, is to walk with him, is to live like he lived, is to obey him, is to please him, is to know him and to do what he loves because you love him and because he loved you more than you could ever imagine and loves you still. And now you begin to look at those old things and they still have a pull on you. You can still, you still know that they're fun and they're enticing and they're whatever, but you know that they're dead things. You know that they're not good. You know that they're pulling you away from what you want most because what you want most has now changed from being the old things to the new things, right? Which is Christ. So now it's, it's the other way around. It's not that God's getting in the way of my fun. It's that these things that I used to think are fun, but are actually empty and dead are getting in the way of my relationship with God. And I'm actually, I don't want them. I'm genuinely trying to fight them, not fight God so I can have them back. Are you hearing what I'm saying? If there's a genuine change of affection, right? I used to love this. I don't anymore. I love something. In fact, I love someone so much more. I want him so much more, right? If there's a genuine change of affections, those things will still draw you. And guess what? From time to time, you will actually still fall in those things. You will still give into those things. But when you do, you don't go, oh, that was so good. I want, like, I, you feel horrible afterwards. You're like, that was trash. I can't believe I left Jesus for that. That was so empty. That was so dirty. I don't want that. Whereas before, that was all that you wanted, right? And that's what I mean. It's not like the mom going, here's a bowl of candy. I know you really want it, but you can't have it. And I'm going to hold you back from it because I'm cruel and evil. No, when the Holy Spirit has indwelt you, your affections will change. And the things that you wanted most are not the things that you want most anymore. They're standing in the way now of what you want most, which is Christ himself. And that changes how you live, right? And that's what I want all of you to know and to hear and to see and to feel and to experience for yourselves that you've been made new. You have a new nature. It's not what you were. Oh, but now I, you know, I really want to go back to that, but oh, I can't because God said, no, it's like, no, I want to do what God says, but this is tempting me and enticing me and trying to pull me away from that. And now I'm fighting it. Right. So let me show you what that looks like right here in Romans chapter seven. Paul says this, so I find this law at work, although I want to do good, I want to follow Jesus, I want to do what he says, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. On the inside, deep down, I delight in God's law. I want to do what he says, I want to follow him, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. 
Does this sound like a guy who wants to go back to his old life to you? Or does this sound like a guy desperately trying to follow Jesus and resist his old life? That's the difference. That's the difference. And he says this, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death, right? He says here, look at this. Um, For I know the good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do. This I keep on doing. There's the struggle, right? Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin living in me. Because I have two natures, right? And he goes on to say the rest of that stuff. So what I'm trying to say to you is it's not, I really want this old life, but God is holding me back from it. No, when you become a believer, genuinely, it gets reversed. It's, I really want to be with Christ, but I'm trying desperately to resist my sin and I'm failing without the power of the Holy Spirit. But I don't want to go back to this and I don't want to live in it, even though it's fun sometimes and it feels pleasurable. Sin feels pleasurable, guys. Sin is fun, guys. Like it's, it, it is. It wouldn't be enticing if it wasn't. But the end of it is destruction and death and emptiness and evil. And it's not good. So even though it's fun for a moment, it destroys. So that's not what I want, right? So we're going to go into three stories and I'm going to take them quickly, right? Where we see this whole idea of, let's go back here. We see this whole idea of there's a, there's a legitimate need. There's an action that's taken. And then there's a consequence to that. So we can see that self-control that the Holy Spirit enables us to have in real life. What does that really look like, right? Okay, so check this out. Joseph and Potiphar's wife, story number one. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything that he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned, right? Now, we go to this special little verse here, right? And it says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Joseph was a good-looking dude. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. And he said, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one's greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. Let me tell you something, right? When I'd read the story, okay, uh, when, I was, when I was your age, I would think this is like this creepy old woman who wants to sleep with Joseph. She's probably like 70 and she's like, you know, it's just this weird perverted thing that this lady is doing. And I'm like, then the more I thought about it when I grew up, I'm like, I don't think that's what happened here at all. I think 
that this girl was not an old woman. I think that she was young. I think that she was actually close to Joseph's age because this man, Potiphar, who was the master, he was like Pharaoh's right-hand man. So he would have he would have picked from all the most beautiful women in the land and he would have chosen someone who wasn't 60 or 70 years old or whatever to marry. He would have chosen one of the most beautiful women in the kingdom and she would have been Joseph's age or close to it. And she thought that Joseph was a babe. Okay. That's what's happening here. So the temptation isn't, otherwise God wouldn't have rewarded him so much for what happened. Anybody can resist an 80 year old woman going like, no, that's not what was happening here. I don't believe it was right. This was a genuine challenge. Joseph had a genuine test in front of him every single day. It says day after day. It wasn't just one day. It was day after day, right? Now, Joseph was a boy who was loved by his parents, right? He was loved by his father. Um, he had a good, a comfortable life, right? And he was betrayed by his own brothers and sold into slavery and became nothing and then built himself up by the grace of God in this house of this man, right? And he is cut off from all kinds of affection. He's um, not known. He's a slave. He's not really loved. He's definitely not comfortable, right? And so you can imagine he has legitimate needs in this moment. Do you see where I'm going? He's like, man, somebody here wants me. Somebody here thinks I'm handsome. Somebody here wants to give me affection. Somebody here wants to give me a loving touch that I've been missing from my parents, from my house for so many years. I'm a slave. Nobody even knows me. And now somebody doesn't just want to know me. She wants to know me like that. And I think she's gorgeous, probably, right? Now, where does the self-control come in, right? He has a legitimate need, but he chooses not to fulfill it the world's way right? Or the way that seems good to him in the moment that he knows is against God. And how do I know that? He says this, my master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? See, his eyes aren't on himself and his own desires. His eyes are on God and his desires for Joseph's life. He says, you know what, Lord, you know what you're doing, even though I'm tired, even though I'm in pain, even though I'm unknown and I'm a slave and I have needs. You know me. You know my needs. You're my God. I follow you. You take care of me and you supply my needs. Not this way. Not this woman. That is superhuman self-control. She didn't do it once. She did it day after day. And we know the rest of the story. One day she tries it. She gets too close to him. She pulls on his robe. He runs away and leaves the robe in her hand. He goes to jail for years as a result of that as an innocent man, right? So we go back to here and we say there was a need, a legitimate need. Joseph took an action by deciding to not fulfill that need the world's way or the way that his lust and his flesh told him he should fulfill that need. And there was a consequence to that action. He went to prison, but was that really the final consequence? No, of course not. Look at the title, Joseph made ruler of Egypt. A few years later, Joseph comes out of that prison and this is what happens. Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the spirit of God? 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is intelligent or as wise as you. You will be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I sitting on my throne will have a rank higher than yours. God takes Joseph's faithfulness in a private moment and transforms it into giving him a responsibility over the entire known world at the time, which was Egypt and all the countries and lands that it controlled. He makes him basically Pharaoh. He makes him essentially king of the world, right? He's like, you were faithful to me. You submitted to me. You knew my will and you did things my way in private. I know you will submit to me and do things my way in public with much more responsibility, not just in charge of Potiphar's house, you're in charge of all the known world. There is a legitimate need. And then there is a legitimate test for all of us every single day, day after day, of how we're going to fulfill that need. And then there is a consequence to that, whether it will bring us closer to God or whether it will take us further away from him, whether it is something that brings about life or something that brings about death right? Need, legitimate need, action and choice, choice and action, consequence, right? Happens with somebody else. Her name was Ruth, right? And it says this, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they lived there about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So basically, in case you missed all that, there's this family that left Israel because there was a famine and they went to live in a place called Moab, right? Then that same famine came to Moab and there was a, a husband and two sons. And those two sons married two women from Moab. One was named Ruth and one was named Orpah, right? And then all those three men died. The father and the two sons died. So those three women became widows, the mother and those two, uh, two ladies, right? So now they heard, hey, it's going well back home. So we're going to go back home because that's, um, that's where the food is, right? Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, go back, each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept loudly and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait then until they grew up? Would they remain unmarried for you? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. 
At this, they wept loudly again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her, stayed with her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if it's death that separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Here was again a young woman who had a legitimate need and she had a legitimate right, right? Her husband is dead. She could get back and, and go get married again. She doesn't need to stick around with this old woman. She could go back home, find heaps of different people who could marry her, have a comfortable life. Instead, she's going from a, a country with famine to a country with probably another famine. And it's like, why? The other daughter was like, yeah, cool, sweet, goodbye, see ya, I'm going home. But Ruth goes, no, I'm sticking with you. I have a legitimate need, but I know that your God is now my God and he's going to take care of my legitimate need. And what happens? She meets a man there, I'm not going to read the whole story, named Boaz. And at the end, this is what happens. They get married, and then this is what happens. Now, these are the generations of Perez. And by the way, Boaz is a type of Christ. He's a better husband to her than anybody else in the world ever could have been. Perez fathered Hezron. So these are the kids they had. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. So there's Boaz who married Ruth. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. That's King David. And from the line of King David came the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There was a legitimate need. There was two ways that it could have gone. There's the world's way. Hey, you're free. Go back home. Forget God. Forget this old lady and live your life. Or there's God's way. Stick with me. I'll provide your needs. Have the self-control to deny yourself what you think is right and good because you know that what I have for you is better and that I am better. Follow me. The Holy Spirit gives her the strength to do that, to make that choice. She does. And as a result, from her line comes the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Need, choice and action, consequence. Every time. Let's go to the Lord Jesus himself. Right? Here we go. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to get arrested and then crucified. And he says this, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's seeing what's in front of him and he's like, oh my, I know I'm going to do it, but it's almost like just this pleading, but that's not what Jesus did. That's not the path that he chose. He chose to die so that we could live. And James says this, and I'll, I'll read this one last. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. 
for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God doesn't do the tempting. He's not the mom with the bowl. No, he is the good thing that we ultimately want. And the bowl is distracting us from him, right? Now, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed is the man who has a legitimate need. That need is tested. And when it's tested, he chooses God. Because when he stands fast, he will receive the crown of life. And there's the consequence, right? So we read this in Hebrews about what Jesus did. I'm just going to drag this away, right? That scenario that we just read about Jesus. And it says this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, just like Joseph, just like Ruth, just like Christ himself, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, check this out, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at this. We don't think about temptation like enduring it, do we? We're like, man, I wish I could have this. It's like a real desire. It's a real pull. But for Jesus, he had to endure it. It wasn't something he wanted or he found pleasurable. He had to endure it to get to the joy that was set before him. Self, uh, sorry, that self-control is giving up what we want now for what we ultimately want more than anything. I'm tempted by this thing now, but it doesn't compare to the glory that's on the other side, to the joy that's on the other side. And that's what I want. I'm not going to give into this because what I want is Christ himself, right? Now, I'm not going to read all of these, but I just want to read you what it looks like when you don't have self-control. This is what we'll end with. It's not good to eat too much honey in Proverbs 25, nor is it honorable to search out matters that are too deep. Here's the description. And this is one of the most powerful descriptions of a person without self-control that I've ever heard. Like a city whose walls are broken down or broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Every temptation comes in. Nothing is resisted. There's no resistance. There's no defense. There's no desire. It's just any enemy can walk right in and out. You don't even have gates because you don't even have walls around you. It's just open season for any enemy who wants to come and clean you up, right? That's what it's like to live without self-control. And you want to know what it looks like in real life? It's in, in this example of wine, it says this, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaints, who, had, who has needless bruises, who has bloodshot eyes. It's talking about alcoholics, but it's talking about all kinds of addictions and lack of self-control. Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine, just like that, that plate of lollies, do not gaze at the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup. How much does that describe temptation to you? When it goes down smoothly, but in the end, it bites like a snake and its poison is like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind will imagine confusing things. You'll be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging saying, they hit me, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. And here's the saddest verse ever about what it's like to be addicted to sin. When will I wake up so that I can find another drink? That's all you're after. 
That's all you want. You don't know anything else and you just keep getting smashed. You're a city broken down with no walls. But the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit that is self-control is to give us God's power to say yes to him where we couldn't before. To say no to our flesh, to say no to our old nature, to say no to our sin and anything that would fulfill our needs in an, in an illegitimate way. And to say yes in each of those moments to God himself by his power. Right. So those are the three stories. And here's the end. Here's the last slide. Right. This is the call that all of us have to submit yourselves. Then James says to God, resist the devil and he will free from you. Know that you have legitimate needs that God has put in you that he himself wants to fulfill. But know that Satan also has a fake version of all of those needs, all of those that he wants you to use to fulfill the needs that God gave you. They all lead to bitterness, to destruction, and to death. They rob you of every joy of your life. And any of you who have sinned, which is all of you, know this. You feel that instant, awful feeling of, I can't believe I just did that. But when we have those legitimate needs, we have a choice of how to fulfill them. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to choose Christ, to choose his way, to choose what is right in every single one of those moments, just like Joseph, again and again and again. And that's what we're called to do here in this verse. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee, flee from you. And we just read, there is a reward to that. The reward is that not only do we get Christ himself, but with Christ, we get everything else thrown in. Those real legitimate needs that we couldn't fulfill on our own, Christ gives us the fulfillment to them in himself, his time, his way. Joseph still got his family back and the love and affection and everything else that he truly longed for and was made responsible and rewarded by God in that, right? Ruth was married to an amazing man, again, that she would never have been able to find at home. And from her line, God would give her the honor to bring Christ from her own line. And Jesus, enduring the cross and its shame for us, his reward is that his name is now above every name. He has the ultimate power, the ultimate authority, and he saves us. The joy that's set before him is that we get to come to him. He saves us and he gets to, um, to have that. We get to have that relationship with him and that's what he rejoices in, right? It's the same for every single one of the needs that you have in your life. God, through the Holy Spirit, offers you self-control, offers you the ability to say no where you couldn't before by his power not on your own but by his power so that's the series on the fruit of the spirit